this is a great burden for me with young people who feel like that they can't connect where they are or that they don't, um, that, that Christianity as it's been sold to them or as the church that they grew up in is practiced it, um, is, you know, is is Christianity. I just want to say to you, no, it's not. And, and with all the grace in my heart, I want to say, no, it isn't. And please be open. It's okay that you're dismantling things and that you're confused and maybe even angry about some of this and, and and say all that and have all those conversations and stay in that space where you know for as long as you need to but also please understand that it's much older and that that story that they that the christians died for and they laid their life down for is a beautiful story and it's the true story of the world Hey everyone, Paul here. I'm just so excited to share with you today's conversation with a new friend of mine, Kenneth Tanner. Father Kenneth Tanner pastors Holy Redeemer Church in Rochester Hills, Michigan. His church community is actually a charismatic Episcopal Christian community, which might seem like a combination of words that uh, for some of you feel like that doesn't go together. (laughs) And that's totally understandable. Um, But as you're going to hear as part of Kenneth's story, uh, these words can actually go together. We can find ways of having these different streams in the broad historic Christian river be a complement to each other. And Kenneth is such an amazing voice, helping people sort through questions about their own faith, broadening their perspectives, and helping them get connected with a much more ancient, rich, and historic Christian story than what maybe many people were exposed to. Kenneth writes about the intersection of theology and our cultural moments over at his blog, which I'll provide a link for in the description of this podcast, but also over at patheos.com. He's also contributed to Christianity Today, Mockingbird, and several other publications as well. If you're on social media, you can also find him on Twitter and Instagram. He's a great follow over there as well. And man, I, I just can't tell you how much I enjoyed talking with him in today's conversation. Today's episode is made possible without advertisement because of the generous support of listeners just like you over on Patreon. Make sure you stay tuned to the very end of the episode today where I will tell you a bit more about the Deep Talks Patreon community, a place where you can not only support this podcast, but get involved in discussion forums, monthly Zoom meetings, all sorts of other fun stuff, Q&A episodes, charts, graphs, recommended readings, a whole bunch of other things. So uh, again, stay tuned to the very end. I'll tell you more about that and uh, hopefully you'll consider supporting. Well, so great to be joined by Kenneth Tanner. Kenneth, thank you. You know, I I realized as I was looking up your church this morning that you are a Michigander and I actually grew up, I was born and raised, spent the first 23 years of my life, not probably not too far from you in the Metro Detroit area. So do you bleed maize and blue or are you a Sparty or do you not care at all? <laughs> I, we're, we're really transplanted, you know, folks yeah. here. Okay. I've been the pastor here for 17 years. Um, I do have some, my stepfather's family are from Pontiac. And uh, so some of, when we got here, we were reunited with some of our family. Um, but I never, you know, I, I didn't grow up here. I spent a long spring and summer here when my father was touring as a minister back in 1977, living with them in Pontiac. 
uh, for about six months. Um, but I was raised in the South, so um, and we're from deep South families on both sides. Um, and, uh, you know, back uh, a long way. And uh, so, you know, I spent the first 15 years of my life there and then 20 years in California because ministry took my dad to the Los Angeles area, okay. Orange County. So I went to high school, college, um, got married, had her kids, started doing, you know, uh, had a vocation, was a writer. Um, and uh, then uh, from there, and I, that's where I started studying for the ministry and I was ordained in the 90s, that was all happening. And uh, I spent six years on the staff of a magazine in Chicago, um, and then uh, with my family, and then we moved here. So, um, yeah, been, been around. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and everywhere. <laughs> I was really fascinated, and this is one of the things I, I've been most intrigued by and have been wanting to talk to you about, Kenneth, is um, checking out your church, Holy Redeemer, you know, you guys describe yourself as a charismatic Episcopal community, mm-hmm. which is a unique combination of words for most people. Yeah. And you describe Oxymoronic. it. Yeah, it does seem like that to, to many people, right? <laughs> sure. Um, and then you guys describe yourself as having these values where the reverence for God's presence in ancient Christian worship uh, intersects with the expectation of the Holy Spirit's activity and praise. Mm-hmm. I'm just taking this from your website here, edification yeah. and uh, healing, where sacramental and contemporary forms of worship converge with a passion for Holy Scripture, evangelical witness, and the signs that accompany the gospel. You know, we were talking beforehand, Kenneth, a bit about my story and having this um, this extensive charismatic background, not just in my childhood experience of church, but even in my early years of being in vocational ministry. As I read that description, I go... This is the kind of church that seems really intriguing to me, one that I don't see a lot of. In, in fact, the, the combining of these streams together, at least in American context, seems really, really rare. You've got to have an interesting journey. Um, you've sure. shared some of it, at least professionally and family-wise, but I'm really curious about your own spiritual and theological journey that would lead you to the point of, you're leading and pastoring a community like this. So can you give us a little bit of that auto, you know, spiritual autobiographical information? Yeah, sure. Um, I was raised in the South by Pentecostals um, and multi-generational Pentecostals from East Tennessee, which is where the Church of God was uh, formed. And uh, my, my mother's father was a minister of the Church of God from key, literally, he pastored churches from the Panhandle to Key West. Uh, and uh, so my father's people were from East Tennessee. And my parents met in Orlando. But I, I was raised in a little, you know, Pentecostal church, a church of God in Orlando, South Orlando, before Orlando is what it is today. And, um, you know, a lot of country folk, a lot of simple folk, a lot of poor people, uh, a lot of old timers. Uh, you know, and uh, old Pentecostalism, you know, especially Church of God, there's a lot of holiness sort of yeah. focus, you know. So, I mean, you, just, you know, you can caricature it and say, you know, well, you know, no movies, no sports, no makeup, you know. No shorts. You know, Are right. You no able shorts, to wear right. shorts? No, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, my mother's generation and her mother's generation were much more severe. My mother 
um, actually didn't put all those rules on us, I think, probably because she was raised with a lot of it, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, the thing that can get lost in all of that is the, you know, my, my grandparents and and my parents, too, um, where people really believed in prayer, really believed in encountering Jesus in the scriptures, um, cherished the Holy Spirit, um, you know, were very caring about the poor and, uh, you know, so they, um, and, you know, <laughs> thinking about it, they're, they're impoverished themselves, but, um, you know, I, sometimes I think, you know, we can talk about some of the things that, you know, we have to move on from, you know, without just really valuing what it is, you know, and uh, so there's a lot of, I, you know, I mean, you could talk about, you know, men and women not being able to swim in the same swimming pool and, and silly stuff like that. And it's true. And then sometimes, you know, manifestations of the spirit can be uh, bizarre and strange. And I saw lots and lots of that sort of thing. Um, but I really value my, you know, I, it, these were people who love God and, um, and had a very intimate relationship you know, with God and uh, really saw God, you know, um, as a community, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah, that um, sounds sounds like such a healthy appreciation and perspective on it. I know as I'm starting to get a little bit older here, Kenneth, and have some distance from my own childhood experiences, I'm finding more and more a sense of warmth and appreciation for a lot of the features of it that I, I actually really miss you know, in my current context, and even the way we sure. raise our kids, you know, there's certain things about it that you're like, I, I don't know, I'm, you know, there's a generational difference between you and I, but I think um, one of the things my, my generation in particular, I'm 37, is that we really wrestle with this sense of idealism. Um, and that, yeah. you know, uh, that some at some point, we're, we're gonna like, in the here and now land in the eschaton, <laughs> like our <laughs> the idealized version of reality and um i think it keeps a lot of people my age from ever settling down into a christian community of any kind because they go well it's got to have this it's got to have this got to have this got to have this and it's like ah there's probably going to be a trade-off somewhere right you know and and a lot of those things i hear you talk about i was like i miss that you know i i I had a mentor that was in a um, I grew up in a charismatic church, but I had a mentor that was in a deeply per- Pentecostal church, and there are differences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's different flavors there. I know that it often gets lumped together as one tradition, but I I miss there was like a fervency in the way uh, we danced oh, in sure. the Pentecostal church that we didn't have in the charismatic church, and and even as I like kind of have a wider appreciation for science and psychology and neuroscience now like there's something about that i'm actually like really connecting my spirituality to my body in a way in those fervent i'm talking about like my calves would be sore the next day from jumping and dancing Mm -hmm. uh pentecostal sure revival meetings that i go ah there was actually probably a little bit of something healthy 
in that. And I, I appreciate that you see that in your own journey Absolutely. too. Absolutely. You know, we, we, you know, things are revivals and you would go to camp meetings and, you know, um, and all these experiences when I was very young, I mean, you know, um, and, uh, you know, you have the women, all the women with their fans and the music would be incredible. Um, qu choirs, soloists, quartets, um, some of the finest music you'll ever hear. And, um, you know, preaching would be, you know, very dramatic um, and uh, always altar calls and things. And I was baptized, uh, you know, it's a very young person, you know, I'm six, seven years old. And uh, that was pretty typical, you know, and, uh, you know, they weren't waiting to 12 or 15 or whatever. And, um, you know, prayed through for the gift of tongues and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, did, did my own little share holy rolling and things like that as a child. But, um, you know, there were, I mean, obviously there were things that, you know, uh, it took me a while. My, my father was killed in Vietnam in 1970. Wow. So I was about not quite five and, uh, my mother was widowed for five years. So, um, but she married a young minister who's about five years younger than she was at the time. And uh, in the Church of God, and he eventually took us into more charismatic and prophetic circles as a minister, and that's how we ended up in California. Um, went out there to take a church that had sort of been founded in the TBN sort of stuff, and um, you know, they my parents took us to you know lots of different you know lot, all the different kind of streams of teaching that you get in those settings. And um, I went to Assemblies of God College for a year, and then I ended up, um, had a great Baptist high school experience out there. Um, but we, um, I went to ORU, finally ended up at ORU. And it was really at Oral Roberts that I began to understand that there were things both within the charismatic movement and with roots in my Pentecostal past that I, you know, was starting to question, and you know, as a... 19, 20, you know, 21 year old. Um, that was my wife's exact experience, by the way. She's an ORU alum yeah, as well. Yeah. And uh, I think one thing for her, I'm interested about your experience because it would have been at different times. One of the stories she recounts is how one day she was sitting in class, and this is again in the heyday of the prosperity gospel at o ORU. And um, one of the professors was telling, telling her she's going to be so excited. Not really that I tell this story, but one of the professors was, was uh, teaching the class about how God was like a pop machine. And you, you know, you put in your tithe, you give him your order. And then she had the audacity to ask the question, well, what if you ask for a Coke and instead you get like, you know, a root beer or you don't get anything at all. And she got kicked out of the class for that question. And, um, so I'm interested what, you know, what your experience was like there. I, that's the first time that I've heard this metaphor since, uh, Richard Roberts gave it, um, in a summer partners, uh, conference. Uh, I was working at the campus. Uh, you could do that as a student, uh, helping out. And I was sitting in the back of Kennedy chapel and he was teaching the partners and he, you know, God is like a Coke machine. You know, you put in your offerings, you um, make your selection you know, of what you want. And it, it was a three-point sermon and it, you reach down to receive. That was, a, you got to reach down to receive. <laughs> That's right. And so um, anyway, I, I, I bet you that professor got this, this idea from Richard, but 
you know, yes, I mean, the formula, the formulaic, um, but the, the really, here's the core of it, okay? And this gets to problems in, in some forms of charismatic religion. Not, I mean, your mother's experiences with Roman Catholic charismatics and most of my experiences with Roman Catholic charismatics, wonderful. I mean, you don't see the kind of, you know, strange teachings that you, you know, sometimes get in Lutheran charismatics and so forth. It just really depends. But the kind of sort of free, free-spirited, independent charismatic world had just some of the craziest stuff. But there's a root issue, I think. And one one is, and I'll just tell the story, I, I which I've told before, but I, it was uh, 1996 January, excuse me, 1986 January. Um, we were at Kennedy's Chapel. Um, the shuttle Challenger had blown up. And uh, or use a, a very TV oriented, you know, ca- yeah, yeah. Uh, closed caption. I mean, uh, closed caption. Uh, you know, uh, closed circuit TV everywhere. You know, so we could. We were all solid. We get to chapel. You know, mid morning. Everybody's dreary about what's happened. Um, sad. Um, and the you know the the man who was the minister of students for the undergraduates. Um, said, you know, we've had this, you know, tragedy that's happened, but we're here to just praise God. That's why we're gathered here. And, you know, they had a couple, I mean, literally there was a couple drum sets, you know, not just one, you know, several <laughs> guitarists, probably 20 singers. I mean, the music was incredible there, but, uh, they, 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 they went into a hoot nanny and, uh, I don't know, two bars, f- five bars. I don't know. It was very, well, it didn't take very long into it. I was like, mm, I can't do this. And I just sat down. Um, If we could not, if there's no connection between what's happening in the real world and our gathering for worship, then we're in trouble. Yeah. Um, And uh, the same service, this is what I'm trying to say. Always got to look for where God is present and moving in any moment, even in the craziest stuff. This man got up, um, Charles Farah, respected Pentecostal scholar, wrote a book called From the Pentecostal Temple. And the first time, and I think the only time in my memory that someone from the theological faculty spoke in a chapel service, which is just horrible, but that's the way it was. You had some sort of celebrity, you know. Yeah. Anybody. Um, But somebody, so he gets up and he starts talking about he said, I want to share with you today experience of the loss of my wife and um, how through her, the cancer that she suffered, we both um, had an experience of the suffering of Christ with us. And and we had become participants in Christ's suffering on the cross. Oh my goodness. I'm freaking out because I know that world and I know how that would land. Yeah. And I just was like, <laughs> oh, wow, this is something yeah. I want to know more about. And the contrast really made it like, okay. So, and within a few weeks, and I mean, I'm I'm sure, you know, I, I, I think thoughts are prayers. So I didn't like say, Lord Jesus, you know, help me get learn more about this. I just thought I need to know more about this. And there was a book in the bookstore where I worked at, at ORU called Evangelicals Not Enough by Thomas Howard. I picked it up, first chapter. He's going about, he's going, he, you know, Tom's a graduate of Wheaton College. Um, 
major bat major major evangelical family right um his his sister was elizabeth elliot you know jim elliot through gates of splendor the whole nine yards um he's talking about growing up bible reading scripture memorization flannel graphs in sunday school even you know blood hymns um you know those those beautiful 19th century um you know, blood hymns. You nothing know, but the blood. Nothing but the blood. Oh, the blood of Jesus. And yeah. and and so, and I'm going. This is you know, uh, Pentecostal. It, you know, it, it's you know, Pentecostals are just you know, evangelicals who speak in tongues. You know, and so for the most part, um, and uh, so I'm reading through some. Going, yeah, man, I'm with you. And at the end of the end of the chapter, describing all these things that he loved about his evangelical experience and heritage. He said, I just came to the point where it wasn't enough. Next chapter, he introduced was one of the first, the pastors of the first Christians, second century, and a man named Irenaeus. And he begins to talk about how the first Christians viewed the gospel and viewed Jesus. And he said that God created the world good. <laughs> what a radical idea. And at the at the crown of his creation, he made human beings in his own image. Didn't speak their didn't speak them into existence. He handcrafted them, and then breathed into the, us the breath of life, animate clay, right? So from the ground, um, and uh, and and puts our it puts his image in us, not not in anything else in creation, but the human, and uh, that God made us good too, you know, and that his, you know, he sees the world falling into death. Athanasius says, you know, God, God doesn't, God doesn't envy anything in existence. His, his kind of existence, he wants to share his kind of existence with us. And he sees us falling down um, into death and even beyond death in the grave to non-existence, the non-existence from which we were, called out of right into being and so he falls with us in the sun you know and falls below the lowest falling human being um in order to get underneath us and then raise us back not just to the garden but beyond the garden into the divine life and that this world is the object of his love and he wants not you know not as I was raised, and here, here we're starting to get to the points where there's a difference, you know, is, you know, not that we're to escape the world, you know, but that um, this world has now been reclaimed, you know, as God's creation, and um, that he he is interested in, in saving it all, you know, and uh, not destroying it, as I was taught, or that we, you know, uh, it would be destroyed and then, you know, we're raptured out to some other place and so forth and so on. And, you know, I was dragged into, you know, when I was nine years old, I was dragged into the church to watch Thief in the Night and yep, yep, scared yep. the hell out of me, <laughs> um, you know, and, and all of that. And so, um, you know, chick tracks and the whole nine yards. Yeah, yeah. So um, here was something that I really was like, oh, wow. Because there was also an account of suffering because God becomes human and suffers with us. And so 
if someone wasn't wealthy or wasn't healthy or didn't have everything together in life or whatever, it wasn't a sign that God, you know, didn't have favor on them. God is with the poor. That's right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's not God just was, that they didn't hit their minimum threshold of faith that they yeah, had to do to yeah. kick in and experience the, the blessings of God. Right. Right. It was always either you, you were doing something wrong, you know, or you didn't have enough faith, you yeah. know, so it's formulaic, but here's a God who enters into normal human experience, you know, um, and we can see it in the Gospels. Ang- anxiety, hunger, thirst. Um, uh, and, and anxiety, I mean, people think anxiety, really? In, yeah, in the garden. What, what else is that? <laughs> but the human anguish of, uh, you know, knowing what he's going to face. Um, you know, the God who's asleep on a boat, you know. Um, and uh, so he's, this is real human. He doesn't. He doesn't stand outside the human experience of contingency and suffering, but draws near to all of our experiences of what it means to be human. Um, he's acquainted with everything, you know, and and so I that just set me on a a journey from that moment. And and there was a man named Bob Stamps who wrote this wonderful hymn called "God a Man." Table are set down. If you've never heard it, check it out. You'll love singing it with your congregation at, at communion. But he was holding um, uh, Vesper services on Sunday night. I started going to those and encountering Christ in bread and in wine <laughs> with my Lutheran and Catholic and Episcopal and all, you know, the, the students that were from, because, you know, ORU is a wildly, it was wildly ecumenical school. I mean, it was the charismatic university and the charismatics had come from all the different churches. So in, you know, back then it, it's had a lot. And, and my, I mean, I'll just say this too. My academics experience at ORU was incredible. I mean, the culture and lots of other things I yeah. you know, can make yeah. fun of. But, you know, they had an amazing faculty. People had given up positions at Brown and Missouri and other places because they had been involved in this charismatic experience in the Presbyterian Church, Lutheran Church, wherever they were. And they're like, they gave up everything to come and be part of this, you know, you know, cutting edge school. And they didn't know. I mean, they didn't know a decade later it would be caught up in the word of faith thing or all this kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. You know, they still, you know, had fairly standard you know, Christian roots. Totally. You know, and, and the, the, the uh, we, I read Heschel and I, we read, you know, Joseph Lynch and, um, you know, Flannery O'Connor and Thomas Merton and, wow. um, you know, it, it, it was, a, I mean, they're fantastic faculty. Hmm. Um, and, um, so Robert Alter, I mean, it's unbelievable. Some of the people that we read when I think about it, um, wonderful, you know, and, uh, but it just shot me into, there's something more. Love my Pentecostal heritage. Yeah. Um, but there's much, much more. And so, um, you know, I began to um, read and to talk with people. Um, Robert Weber became a friend um, who was at Wheaton College. That's awesome. Yeah. And and he's the one who pointed me to Tom Oden. Um and Tom, I started working with Tom, and it had a had a small role in the ancient uh, uh, the Christian commentary on Scripture project. 
Um, and uh, he took an interest in me as a young uh, for, formational, uh, information uh, young man in terms of ministry. And so I began studying, you know, and, and reading and learning more about these first Christians. And this has been my abiding interest. Um, and it's all of those things that kind of led me into the kinds of um, worship and practices. And, and it's an ongoing thing. I'm, you know, I mean, just in the last year, I've discovered, you know, Lectio in the last five years yeah, and, yeah. and using that practice, something I wasn't doing the, you know, the first 20 years of this journey. So your story excites me so much, <clears throat> Kenneth, because it, 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 I share so much resonance with it. Um, and it's, it's really the, the narrative arc that I try to push others to, or at least invite others to explore when they are going through moments in which their faith feels like it's collapsing, whether it's because it's been in context where um, there has been improprieties, right? And there's legitimate hurts there, whether they've seen moral failures, seen that, <laughs> felt that stuff firsthand too. Yeah. Um, whether it's just been that the the Christian narrative that they've received can't deal with their meaning their own meaning making experience in the world. There's there's too much cognitive dissonance. It feels so the place I always begin if I'm when I'm sitting down with somebody is to say, Okay, these are really good questions that you're going through and they're these are real legitimate hurts and experiences. Can we consider though that maybe your particular experience of Christian community and the Christian story is not the entirety of it first before we decide, hey, we got to leave for something else. You may still go through all of this and be like, hey, this might not be for me, but can we start there? That might be a more rational place to begin because that's where it was for me. Like there were, there were things about my experience like yours that were like, I, I can't do this anymore. There were there were moments, and there's so many good things that were happening in, in Pentecostal and charismatic context. That again, like I say, I miss it. There, there's degrees of it that I really, really miss. For sure. But also a whole bunch of things that I couldn't stand anymore. No, I, to the, yeah. To the point where I was like, I don't think I can do this. And if this is what following Jesus is, I don't know if I can do it. Thank yeah. the, I mean, the utter grace of God that I discovered which I, you know, it's, it's a mystery to me that I could have gone 20 plus years of life and had no idea who Irenaeus was or Athanasius yeah. or Origen or Gregory of Nyssa or Justin Martyr, mm-hmm. um, that I would have had no familiarity with it. Even with somebody like, again, I was a history undergrad, you know, and I, I had no, I had no connection to a much more ancient church. And when I found this, like you were saying, the way that Irenaeus told the story, I was like, "Why isn't this the way?" Yeah, we all we all should be telling that story. Yeah, yeah. when I read yeah. the first time I read on the incarnation from Athanasius, yeah, I was like, first of all, there were points of harmony and resonance. When I got yeah. into reading the more Eastern traditions that focused on theosis. I went, oh, yeah, there's a lot of connections. A, there's a lot of connection here. Like we had this really no. strong emphasis on communion with God. Mm-hmm. Now for us, the, the primary sacrament was singing and music. Sure. I mean, that was our sacrament. 
um, or it was like the healing oh, line. Anoy- annoying, annoying oil, you know. Yeah, anointing oil. These Fair were cloth. The, yeah, these were the sacraments. Yeah. But I, there was something there at its core that like we were after, and it was at this emphasis on, no, you can actually know God in an experiential way beyond just reading the text. Yeah. Um, and I saw that. I saw that in the, 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 the ancient faith, the historic faith, where I'm like, wow, where was this my entire life? And it, it uh, I don't know. It's hard to say, like, what would have went on differently in my life. I don't know if at that juncture, say 2010 to 2012, if I don't uncover by the grace of God some of the more ancient historic Christian perspectives, I don't know where I would be right now. I don't think I would have sustained Christian community and living in a Christian story because there were too many points in which the story I was living in just didn't work with the world around me. And I, when I hear your story, I light up because that's like, that's the thing I'm trying to introduce people to. And it's not planting a, a flagpole. I know some people, they find their gateway back in through Eastern Orthodoxy. And that's great. Right. I celebrate that. Maybe, sure. you know, there's, they find a charismatic Catholic expression. You know, I celebrate that. I'm not in either one of those camps. I find a lot of value in it. But when I hear your story, I go, oh, Praise God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that um, Robert Weber would have loved about now and in the last, we lost him too early, but yes. what he would have really loved is because he was never interested in making Anglicans out of everyone, you know? Right, right. Episcopalians, um, you know, my friends like friend, my friend John Bear, he's not interested in making anybody Orthodox, you know? He's interested in the vision of Christ. Yes, and he's he like I am astonished by Jesus, and uh, the witness to Christ that is present um, in the saints and in the traditions of the church, uh, and uh, so you know, for for Robert, it would for for Weber for Bob Weber, it would have really been wonderful to him to have a congregation like yours start taking Lent seriously. Um, to, you know, to practice Advent, to have a more frequent participation in the Eucharist, to, you know, begin reading the text, you know, of Scripture with the whole church. Um, You know, renewal in individual congregations is not about, you know, a destiny and, you know, Catholicism or Orthodoxy or Anglicanism or whatever, but it could also you know, really cross-pollinate and, you know, Baptist communities and independent communities and free church uh, communities. He's been so excited about what's happening, and so am I. You know, for the listeners that aren't familiar with Robert Weber, I, I mean, he's played a huge role in my own formation and in my vocation. Like, what I yeah. do essentially is I feel like I'm always just stealing his ideas. Yeah, yeah. And putting, trying to put him into practice in our own, our own church community. Um, for, but I don't think I've ever really talked about him on this podcast. Uh, mm. For listeners that aren't familiar with him, uh, of course, like the maybe the term ancient future worship is something that That's is him. associated with him, yeah. right? Um, can you tell, maybe explain a little bit more about who Robert Weber was? Yeah, well, I mean, just first of all, I mean, he's, he, he, he writes for 
um, the plumber, you know, and he writes for the um, the carpenter and the nurse and, and so forth. So um, people can mistake him as uh, a lightweight in terms of like he he was he knew the tradition backwards and forwards and could, you know, could written, you know, at whatever level he wanted to. But he was much more interested in getting uh, the vision of the first Christians and their practices and, uh, you know, right into the hearts of yeah, everybody. Anybody can read and them. So, like, yeah, I, yeah, and that's absolutely. not the case with a lot of the people, a lot of people I talk about on yeah. this podcast. It's, there can be uh he's, you can pick it up, you know, if you've got a high school reading level. Absolutely. Um, and so he's, you know, he, he had an interest in, you know, rec- recognition that the, uh, the whole church has things to teach us. Um, about um, about our faith, about Jesus. And uh, when we began to pray with and work with and read and, and uh, suffer with our fellow Baptists and Anabaptists and Methodists and Charismatic and, um, and Orthodox Christians, we began to see a, the, the greater picture of who Jesus is, you know, uh, God, God, God wants this one. I mean, John 17, you know, the son prays to the father, we might be one, but because of human arrogance and, 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 you know, our pride and, um, and hatred and other things, you know, the church is, uh, has lots and lots of divisions. So I don't think that's God's purpose, but I do think that he's done an in-run around it by saying, right. if you really want to understand who I am, uh, you got to come together to understand who I am because this group has something that, you know, uh, we you don't have, and this other one has Definitely. a piece of the puzzle that you don't have. And Robert was really good at, at sort of putting all that together and saying, look at this calendar that the church has given us where we mark time not by a secular like not by a political agenda not by a, a cultural agenda, agenda <laughs> hallmark agenda whatever it is um you know by the life of jesus that's how we mark time and fellowship with him in the spirit and with the father and so um you know this is how we and and i for, for me it's the the way, you know, to most effectively, um, you know, make disciples of Definitely. people is to, you know, annually just go through the cycle, you know, and every year it's new. That was important to him. The Eucharist was really important to him. Um, you know, he didn't do a whole lot of work in reading scripture, you know, with the fathers, but it was a lot of practices and things like that. And so uh, recovering all of that for the contemporary church, because it belongs to everyone. Yes. And those, <laughs> the those, church was undivided. It, it, you know, so this belongs to your your evangelical free community as much as it belongs to the Orthodox. It belongs as much to the Bab, Russell Moore Baptist as it does, you know, the John Piper reform crowd. Yeah, the, even just incorporating, even if you're in a church context that has never practiced Advent or Lent, and maybe, again, like, the Free Church has this sort of tradition of being like, hey, we broke away from the state churches that were doing, you know, liturgy better than anybody else was doing liturgy, and look how messed up they were. And it's like, well, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, just like I don't throw out the good things that I experienced in my Pentecostal and charismatic experience just, just because there was a bunch of other messed up stuff there. 
as well. And so if you're in a church context like that, like when I stepped in here three, four years ago in this context, it was like, okay, I want to maybe help us see something that um, is countercultural. The countercultural truth can't, it's, it's hard to find something more countercultural than changing the way you mark your days <laughs> yeah. in your time, because this is the story of your life. Yeah. Um, so, you know, instead of, and again, I, I don't want to be like, there can be a dogmatic legalism here in, in our context, for example. As like, in anything. Right. The, um, it was important for me when I was going even through like my interview process here with, with our congregation, it was important for me to feel out how would you guys feel if come like the month of May and in the summer months, um, we just kind of set like a general rule that we only do Christian holidays here, you know, in worship. Um, nothing against moms on Mother's Day or dads on Father's Day, but so that we would be oriented around the story Amen. of Jesus instead of these other civic and nationalistic holidays. Yeah, and they were, they were on board with that. And I'm, that's so huge. And I just, I want to take this maybe even like as a pastoral moment to encourage people uh, in their church context to think about, you know, you, you don't have to move over to doing necessarily like, we're just going to use the lectionary every single week. But maybe even one small step is like, Coming up this next, in the end of this calendar year, when we get to Advent, practice Advent as a church community, not just we've got our big Christmas service. Um, I, I can't describe how much that has changed my life, having never done Advent, never practiced Lent. Um, even just those two, those are like the yeah, peak absolutely. moments in the church calendar have transformed it all. Has that been the case for you? Did you experience oh, profound transformation when you incorporated that orienting of your time and your life into the story of Jesus? Changed, changed so much, you know, and, you know, the lead up to Christmas became oh, so yes. much more about the expectation of the arrival of God. Yes. At I the used end to of not the like Christmas. I'll be yeah, honest. Yeah. I, I was like, eh. And this has totally changed it. <laughs> yeah, you, you get to the point where you, you know, it's, um, you know, it's just all rushing around and and uh, spending more money than you have. And, um, you know, it, it becomes it becomes a blur, you know, instead of preparation as Advent is not just for the coming of God and the feed trough, but for the coming of God at the end of the world. And and then then Christmas is for twelve days because the mystery of the incarnation is so great that you know it's more than one evening or uh, one day we need to spend you know several Sundays marinating in that and and you know same thing with Lent it does help you prepare for Holy Week and enter into. Um, you know, to really re-enter all of these events, you know. And every year I see something about the birth of Jesus. I see something about the cross. I see something about the Last Supper. I see something about Pentecost, um, the Ascension, and so forth, that I didn't see before. Every, I mean, because the, the mysteries are, are, are endless. I want to get back to something you were talking about with young, because this is a great burden for me with young people who feel like that they can't connect where they are or that they don't 
um, that, that Christianity as it's been sold to them or as the church that they grew up in is practiced it, um, is, you know, is, is Christianity. I just want to say to you, no, it's not. And, and with all the grace from my heart, I want to say, no, it isn't. And please um, be open it's okay that you're dismantling things and that you're confused and maybe even angry about some of this and, um, and, and say all that and have all those conversations and stay in that space where, you know, for as long as you need to. But also, um, please understand that, that it's much older and that that, that, that story that, they, that the Christians died for and they they laid their life down for is a beautiful story. And it's the true story of the world. And there's a way to read scripture that's fought with much greater wisdom than you were raised reading scripture. There's 20 centuries of reflection on this text that's also backed up by centuries of rabbinic, you know, wisdom as well and our roots and because we're just branches on the tree of Judaism. And, you know, so it's, it is, there's so much when it comes to the Bible. I'll just give you, just think about this. The way that, that the first Christians read the baptism of Jesus as a participation in the Red Sea and the baptism that the children of Israel experienced under Moses leaving Egypt there, there's a difference with Jesus and the children of Israel. The difference is that Jesus drowns and he goes down, he's immersed in the water of baptism with Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt. So he goes down into the waters of baptism, not only as a, a participation in the Israel story, but as the savior of the Egyptians and their army. He dies with them. Um, you know, so... That's just one, I mean, I could go through thousands of examples of this from the scriptures in the Old Testament. That's the only Bible the first Christians had, um, where they just read the scriptures with greater wisdom. And, and the New Testament teaches us, the gospels teach us that Jesus is the one who opened the scriptures and reveals to the first Christians how to read these texts. And we are not without, we've got Irenaeus' demonstration of the apostolic preaching, that that you know, which is only which is late two hundreds. He's a disciple of of Polycarp, disciple of John. You know, there's only one generation dividing them. And he in that work he goes through lots and lots of the Old Testament and describes this is how it relates to Christ. And then when you start reorienting in that way around scripture, around what it means who Jesus is what it means to worship, you will, you'll, you'll get on fire totally. for, you know. And that's and, just to figure out the atonement theory, the right atonement theory, you know, like that's yeah. the whole oh, yeah. of the, the gospel, which right. you start seeing the pattern of the incarnate son of God, his death and resurrection in everything. Um, this, I, I can't yes. tell you even how much the church fathers um, and being rooted in a much broader historic Christian understanding of the Christian story woke me up to the goodness of God in the sciences. Mm -hmm. it, it dealt with that inner, not even inner, pretty explicit Gnosticism. 
that Absolutely. was part of this world, which was like, and I know you've written about this before, Kenneth, but you know, there's this deep Gnostic story yeah. that has somehow crept into so much of evangelical culture. Yeah. And it's got us believing that, you know, the story starts with darkness and sin instead of starting with the goodness of God and the goodness of what he has made. And then the result of that is like, there's so much, it's like the demigod, the, the fallen demiurge is really the boss of the world. Nobody actually oh, says yeah. that, but that's what it feels like when we start adding up. Well, I can't trust science. Because all the scientists in the world are all atheists and they have an out against the Christian story. And so, you know, even when I'm doing something like as simple, not simple to me because I'm not a scientist, but to a scientist as like carbon dating, there is some, you know, demonic deception going on there. I mean, it really, really makes it hard to engage with the world around you when you presuppose that it's evil. And you yeah. have to get actually some sort of kind of like secret knowledge that no one else has access to. That's in a way, the way it almost felt like the Christian story was framed. And when you look back on the Gnostic heresies, you're going, holy cow, this way that the story was framed by the Gnostics actually sounds in some ways more akin to the ways I've heard the story, which was like, well, special revelation... You know, you have to have special revelation because everyone else, even those scientists, the mathematicians that are doing two plus two equals four, they're, they're in the dark. And only you can actually see that two plus two equals four, four when you get illumined and you've been regenerated. And it's, uh, it's, it's deeply Gnostic. And then it gets really conspiratorial and weird, too. It's yeah. really hard to live in the world that way. Yeah, and so you you know um, the 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 gospel's public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's available to everyone. Yeah, um, it's a it's not a secret. Um, and uh, the 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 way our particular culture, you know, um, I can't speak for other countries, but are are is 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 energized by the conspiracy theories is um, very much like Gnosticism. I've written about this. I, you know, the idea that you have information that no one else has, and that's what gives you a special vantage point on what's really going on. And it shows up in, in gratitude for science, a lack of thankfulness for, you know, uh, the discovery uh, that have been made very quickly about this disease that we're, pandemic that we're facing recognizing that whatever knowledge we have, and, and who knows, I mean, we're still in the middle of this thing, and, you know, I, but just Christians ought to be the ones who, you know, have some trust in God and totally. have some trust in human intelligence and have some trust in their neighbors and also are able to have gratitude for, you know, discoveries that, you know, maybe have saved lives. And, and, um, and uh, but, you know, when you get this parallel narrative that only you know, and that you know, hardly anyone else does. Um, you, you know, it's elitism. You know, mm. and and the Christianity is you know very democratic. In this sense, yeah. you know I, mean? I guess the point I was making about the cross when you start <laughs> seeing that the story is more than just the atonement theory, <laughs> that the story of Jesus oh, yeah. is much more than that. It actually no, no touches doubt. on the sciences. Sarah Coakley has been uh, incredible in this. The yeah. The Anglican theologian, and even 
Because the cross becomes like the new interpretive hermeneutic. It's not that you have secret knowledge of the world. It's like Sarah Coakley has been so great in this and helping me with dealing with Darwinian evolution. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. we can acknowledge these mechanisms while simultaneously calling into question the way we interpret it, right? So is the story really about survival of the fittest? Is it about, you know, whoever becomes the alpha runs the world? Or mm. can we actually use and take a more critical look at the evidence, which is happening a lot more in game theory? I just read an excellent book uh, a couple months ago called Survival of the Friendliest, written by a biologist who uh, did extensive research um, and has got some incredible evidence to show, you know, we really need to question this idea that um, it's only the strong who survive. And what's actually promoted the um, our species as human beings was cooperation, was altruistic mm. behavior, was um, the ability for us to delay gratification, to actually That's lay awesome. down our lives for other people. And you see that, and I go, it's the mystery of the cross. It's the beauty of the cross in all of the world. Um, and it's, uh, I don't think I see that without the reframing of the story by people like Irenaeus, who had no idea of our modern science or Athanasius, right? But yeah. that true story, you said something like this. I, maybe, maybe I imagined this, but I love this phrase. I think you said it. it's the true story of the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the true story of the world. And it doesn't matter, like, it just wasn't in the mind of people living at the time of the right. first Christian, the right. Christ were in the world to uh, think of creation as, you know, a literal seven, yeah. you know, days, you know. And so when we teach our young people in the church that, that their faith is in a period of time in which God creates rather than there's a creator who makes all things from nothing and who loves the world. Um, it That's our faith. That's what the creed tells us, you know, and uh, the mechanisms and the timing and everything. Paradigms on that are going to shift. They, they have over the centuries, all of what we believe right now probably will shift here and there and so forth and so on. But whatever the case, what we believe is that there was nothing but God and that out of the love of God, he created the world. And, uh, you know, you look at a, something like the Big Bang, it sort of sounds like it. I mean, there was nothing and then all of a sudden there was something. But, you know, it's a theory, right? Um, our commitment is to a personal God who makes the world from nothing and loves the world. You know, and if that took 13 billion years or, you know, could he do it in seven days? No doubt in my mind, you know. Sure. So, you know, but uh, we get hung up on all of these things and that's not the only thing we get hung up on. And, you know, we fill our young people's heads with all this stuff and then they get, you know, a lot of counterfactuals when they get out of the the Mm. church and they start thinking, well, does this mean that, that the virgin birth isn't true or that totally you totally. know or that the resur- you know the resurrection isn't real and so it gets mixed up and that's too bad you know and the language of our way. spiritual formation in these contexts is focused around struggle and battle we send our kids to conferences called battle cry we always <laughs> yeah. talk about defending the faith or even language yeah. like we're out there to win souls 
Yeah. It's 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 formative. It's spiritually and psychologically formative language that we use. And then, you know, I I, I know this because I grew up in a K through twelve Christian school. I taught in K through twelve Christian schools for years. And yeah, there's a lot of good that happens there, but that narrative that culture war narrative, the semi-Gnostic, if not full-on Gnostic story sends people out into the world going like, I can't trust anybody. I know mm-hmm. I'm still working through social anxieties with people because I felt like my interaction with somebody who wasn't a Christian, not just a Christian, but wasn't a Christian like I was a Christian, required me to either be in a mode of debate with them or to try to win them over. So you know, I joke about this, but, you know, even my passing conversation with the clerk at the grocery, you know, the grocery store as I'm, as I'm uh, running my, my grocery goods through the checkout, you know, I, I felt, and this seems so silly to some, but I would feel an immense sense of anxiety even about that interaction because I really felt the weight of the world was on my shoulders to either bring the secret knowledge <laughs> this person needs in the 15 seconds that I'm going to be engaged with them, or I'm going to have to defend my turf. Um, it's just not a good mode of being and engagement with the world. And it doesn't seem like the mode of engagement and being that Jesus had or the early disciples and the apostolic witness. And uh, that should be, that should be a red flag to us too as well, shouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> The story of the world um, that begins with the, this one who shows up in the feed trough in Bethlehem is of a God who um, has already related himself to every human being before we enter their story. Um, your grocery clerk is already related to God in two ways. Um, before you showed up with your lettuce and carrots and stuff for the God is his creator or her creator. Um, and they can be running from that. They can be in denial about that. They can, you know, sort of be agnostic about it and different, but our, our story is he is their, their create the creator who loves them. Also, God has related himself to the grocery clerk, because uh, Jesus is the human brother. That's right. Of this person. Again, they can care less about that or um, be angry about it or, you know, um, so, but it doesn't matter. They, yep. God, is, God has acted to relate himself to his creation um, in, these, in these ways. And God has acted to become one of us. The one who, you know, uh, the potter has become the clay. That's right. You know? I mean, that's Athanasius yeah. that he took on not just an individual human nature, but there's a, a the universal human nature that we all human share in, sure. that, that Christ has participated in. And that's the only way that we can become eternal people is through union with yeah. that, that universe. Otherwise, he'd have to be me. He'd have to be come as Kenneth Tanner. He'd have to come individually. But there's there's something about a you know this is the comparison Paul makes between the first Adam and the second Adam. Yeah. But there's some universal participation that we we do have, and yeah. I think we're awakening people to that. We're helping them see yeah. the light, announcing it. And that doesn't take away 
at all from, you know, the to be witnesses to oh, yeah, totally. the story of the gospel, yeah. um, to the, you know, suffering God. Um, we, we have all these opportunities to do it, but this idea that it's on us to rescue the world or every individual, um, you know, ultimately, no. I mean, you know, God is the one who is acting to rescue everyone. Right. We get to graciously participate in that, and it's not arguing for, you know, and, and that can have look like all kinds of things, like taking care of the ocean, or it can look like um, going to the jail um, to, uh, it can be, look like going to the nursing home to sit with uh, somebody who's lonely. Um, you know, there's all kinds of ways, right? And it can also be moments like Philip had with the eunuch, you know, on the road, uh, you know, Gaza Road, right? Um, where <clears throat> the spirit directs, you know, unlike, you know, you're just getting on the airplane, you have to sit down next to someone and then for three hours feel guilty. But, you know, the spirit directs and there's something in a conversation that you're having with someone that directs toward Christ and then yes. you you're paying attention you're aware of moments and you get to play your part you know and and talking about the cross or it's whatever hard for it us is. To, it's hard for us to see that though because we're so situated in our own cultural context which is um and every time I talk about you know something that's a critique of of our hyper capitalist frame I know there's people that are like this guy's a communist I'd prefer uh -huh. I would prefer that the the, the you know I'd I have preferences on economic systems and, you know, the communist system wouldn't be my preference. No, nobody. Um, but the, the question or the critique that I have is that when we're so embedded in our current cultural frame, we assume certain things as true about God, which may not actually be true about God and his story. For example, one of which is this sort of um, transactional um, way of thinking about discipleship. And we use... A heavy emphasis on words like conversion and what it almost conjures up to us, right? It's the old chick track stuff. We give somebody the pamphlet about our business, you know, and we're kind of trying to make a sale. Yeah. Um, and that's very anxiety ridden. And it's very, very different than what holistic Christian discipleship looks like well, but yeah. we can't see that sometimes yeah. in our frame and until we bump up maybe against the failures of it or we get exposed to a different way of seeing it outside of our very individualistic maybe hyper capitalist readings of the world yeah i mean if your frame of reference is you know you know mesopotamian farmer you know um you know who's got to you know offer his child so they you know they can have uh, enough food for their country or whatever it, it, if you've just baptized our, you know, the Christian story and that sort of transactional stuff, then of course, every time we go to share the gospel, it's the same sort of thing. Instead of God taking upon himself everything that is needed for the world to be made right again um, and lovingly and graciously inviting us into um, his activity um, so that none of it's transact. I mean, you know, uh, you know, God's not transactional. Life is not a transaction. Um, you know, God, God, in love, God has redeemed the world. Um, it, it flows from the love of God. Uh, salvation 
healing, deliverance, um, restoration, reconciliation, all flow from the love of God. It's a pure gift. Um, it's not conditional, you know. Uh, it's not, you, you can't buy it. Yeah. Um, it, you don't need to. Um, and, you know, it's offered. Um, and it's all in the nature of God. The nature of God is to save, you know. The nature of God is to... So, you know, I mean, there's a real, there, you know, the, the, there is um, a problem. All you have to do is turn on the news and see that, you know, humanity has a problem. And we, and, 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 and we are um, our own worst enemies. And we, we are full of, uh, we have fallen from love. But the good, the good news is that God has entered into the human situation with us. Yeah. Know? And um, so sometimes I get a little, you know, since many of us were trying to re, uh, re-encounter the story. You get, and, and we have to say that the world is made good and that we're good. That's the beginning of the story. But sometimes you, you, we, we, we can lose a little bit of the narrative that, Things are not as they should be, <laughs> and 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 it's, you know something has to be done about it. But God is the one who's come to do something about it. Yeah, and, and invites us into partnership with absolutely. That. Um, but you're right. Yeah. There, it just turn on the news and even just seeing what's going on in in the Gaza. That's terrible. Uh, you know, it's like I you see the trajectory of that is exactly what Athanasius described. It's a movement towards non-being. It's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. It, you know, yeah. if this thing continued unfettered, right, if there yeah. is no intervention, the trajectory, and I don't care, I don't want to pick a side in any of this and get into the politics of that. All I was to say is if this continues unfettered, it literally leads to annihilation. You know, it yeah. literally need, leads to non, non-being. So all, you're right. All we need to do is turn on the news and, and to see that, um, I'm really curious. I wanted to pick your brain about one other thing, Kenneth, and it is um, something else that brushed up against. I realized it. you've written something recently, and it brushed up against some uh, really deep spiritual formation in me. Uh, some that might, I would say, right now I would say is unhealthy. You you wrote something maybe last week or two weeks ago on your blog, and you know you shared some of it on on Twitter and some other places where you um, you frequently share thoughts, calling Christians to think about what God might be doing in mm-hmm. the world eight thousand years from now. And when mm-hmm. I first saw that number, it's funny because I I don't anymore. I I would tell you that I I don't have. Um, it, an anticipation of, you know, the story, human story, this age coming to an end in my lifetime. But I realized, even as I read that, how much it instantly brushed up against decades of thinking that it could be tomorrow, that the whole story wraps up, and all the associations with this kind of dispensationalist eschatology that was so much part of our cultural programming to think, Boy, the world's the world's going to hell, you know, before the story ends. Either we're getting pulled out of it and he's leaving it to go to hell, or um, you know, we're gonna be stuck here as it all disintegrates and you know, we gotta deal with all the computer yeah. all the ridiculous, you know, Christian fiction end time stuff about computer chips and all of that <laughs> stuff. 
I felt that brush yeah. up in me and I was like, oh, that's still there. Maybe I don't have an imagination enough to see and to think deeply about what would it, what would the goodness of God and the unfolding of his story look like? And what would my participation in that story look like if we were around for another 8,000 years? I haven't up until honestly, the last few years of my life even thought about that. It's been so just this generation, right? This, this is the generation the Lord's yeah. going to return. So Put all your chips on the table right now. Take ridiculous risks that might be short-sighted. I really wrestle with that. Um, and uh, I was even telling last, was last week or two weeks ago, those that listened to the conversation did with Ted Kim and Andy Squires and John Mark McMillan, I legitimately did not believe as a young person that I would live to see this age that I'm at right now. Yeah. I, I had no vision yeah. for it. And I feel like I'm recouping that. That's nobody's fault. I'm not putting that on anybody. I, I think there was a lot of people sure. in that cultural context who felt that way. And I feel like just now I'm starting to think about what would, what would it look like to take seriously that I'm, I'm called to bless the world and participate in God's unfolding story in a way that has like an 8,000, 10,000 year view mm -hmm. to it. Can you flesh that yeah. out, what, what you were going through as you were thinking about that for people? Yeah, my, my son is really interested in um, what he believes is the, the, um, an arc of nonviolent um, sort of revolution that's been occurring in the world in the last several decades. Um, and uh, people are seeing more and more that it works, you know. Uh, like what happened in the Ukraine and so forth. Um, but, you know, I, it, I do think when we get back to Irenaeus and we begin to think about um, the nature of humanity and that we're not, it, there's one human nature that we all share, right? You start looking at somebody like Alexander Men, who's a Russian Orthodox martyr during communism. Um, and, uh, you know, his, you know, he, he was like, Really, Christianity has only taken its first steps, you know, in the world after 2,000 years. We're still really, as a race, we're still Neanderthals, you know, when it comes to, like, entering together the humanity that is modeled for us in the person of Jesus, you know. And so God's patient, you know, so what if it is like if he really is waiting for a mature bride, but it's not just like the bride of one particular moment in time, but like all of us together, you know, coming to a place where, you know, we've re reached that maturity as a process in the spirit. Um, and so, you know, you can see, I mean, if you're fair, there's a lot, all kinds of problems in history. But you can see where the gospel has changed over debt, over centuries, how we think about the poor. Definitely. How we think about the sick. How we think, how, how women are, you know, viewed. How children are treated and so forth and so on. And it's not a perfect story. It's it, all kinds of problems. But you see a kind of arc, a gradual um, healing and gradual restoration and gradual 
a conversion that's going on, not just for us individually, but for the race. And so I was just thinking, like, what if the church does last 10,000 years? That was the number that came into my head. So I said, what's the church like 8,000 years from now? So, you know, we were, we'd be the first Christians. I'm always talking, I, I you know, people like to use the word patristic or ancient Christians or whatever. I just like to call them the first Christians. And these people, for me, the last, you know, first five, 700 years of the church, right? But if the church is 10,000 years old, they'll be thinking about Paul and Kenneth and C.S. Lewis and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and, and uh, you know, Cyprian and as the first Christians. Like, we're yeah, the that, first Christians. It's one little 10,000 years. Yeah. Right? So, like, see how all the stuff they worked out over, you know, 2,000 years and so forth. I just, I don't know. I think every every generation of Christians has always thought they're the last generation of Christians. And it's just, that's not been the case. So, um, you know, God seems to be have a lot of patience. Um, you know, one, you know, the world's a difficult place, man. And people suffering every day in ways that we can't even imagine. And so people like, you know, why doesn't God bring an end to history? Well, you and I wouldn't be here if he brought, you know, you know, history to an end in 1939 and we didn't have the Holocaust or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you and I, and you know, literally billions of people, you know, um, who's to say, you know, when God's family and, you know, the, the people who are supposed to dwell forever with God is complete, you know? And so, you know, who's to say that, you know, somebody, you know, 300 years, 1700 years, 3000 years from now, you know, isn't really intricate to God's wisdom and plan and so forth and so on. So how do you think um, a sort of outlook like that would change the way well, you live your life or you yeah, do ho- church ministry? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, hopefully it changes lots of things. I mean, it, you, you start to say, well, um, you know, are we, are we, you know, farming the right way? You know, are we... Um, you know, how, how are we using energy? You know, what are we doing, um, with conservation? What are we, um, you know, what about these horrible things that we have like nuclear weapons and, um, you know, even, you know, forget about COVID, um, the, the, the stuff we've invented in laboratories that if they let out, we've weaponized and they let out would make COVID look like a, you know, I don't know, a kindergarten play. So um, what about all this darkness? And uh, so just to start thinking about, like, what kind of world are we leaving to, you know, um, three, three, two, five, seven, whatever. Um, I don't know. It just I, it, it just changes. I think we have a perspective of God's patience, perspective of the love of God, Um that you know, you start to think that you know, it could, you know, who knows? I mean, it's speculative, right? So. Totally, totally. But the uh, other way, I, the other I, way is speculative I, too. That's spec. It's yeah, always been speculative I, in reverse. I, I, nobody knows the day or hour, right? So it could be tomorrow. But I think most Christians would be healthier if they had a longer range view. Totally. Of not only 
what God has in redeeming the earth. But, you know, like the time that he has to, you know, make us new creatures, you know? Yeah. And um, so be a little more patient with ourselves and with our neighbors and with others. Yeah, I mean, here's one practical thing I reflect on in my own life. For years, I was traveling around trying to build these houses of prayer because part of our eschatology at the time was this belief that if somehow we could get 24-7 houses of prayer in every major city of the world, that Christ would return. That's an oversimplification, and to some that might sound totally absurd, but we had the scriptures to back it up and everything. You know, all we need to do is rebuild David's fallen tent. What was David's tent? It was a tabernacle. So we need a tabernacle of David worship in every city, and then Christ will return. So what that functionally looked like in my life was a lot, of, a lot of nights of me being gone from my family, taking a set at two or three in the morning. And I, I, think, I think God looked at that as a fragrant offering of worship, no doubt. But I look back and I go, you know, I, I kind of wish in hindsight that when, you know, my wife was nine months pregnant, that she wasn't laying in the back of the room. <laughs> you know, at midnight, uh, what I was doing this set that I thought was bringing back the return of Jesus. And instead, maybe yeah. I, I would have a little bit longer range view. Again, I don't think like God was upset with me. I, you know, we've, yeah. we've worked through that. But to think about ministry, to think about the ministry of the gospel in the world in a way that's not so fast food, <laughs> that's yeah. not so, um, you know, hot pocket. Let's just pop it in the, the microwave here for two minutes because we got to get this thing, we got to get this thing done yeah. right away. But to have a little bit more vision for, at the very least, like our grandkids' generations and beyond that, what does, what kind of sacrifices in the now do we want to make for that kind of future? And I, I do think you're right. It's speculation. But yeah. I think we've done enough speculation on the other side. Yeah, for at sure. least for balance sake, we go, well, we yeah. need to also equally speculate <laughs> yeah. the possibility that, especially when we think about the, the grand scale of human history, not just human history, but how long um, God's been working on this planet, even long before Homo sapiens were a species. Like, we're just a blip on the cosmic yeah. timeline radar. And I have no reason to believe that. It has to be in the next hundred years that we see the end of the age and the story come to its completion. I mean, I do think, you know, God, you know, there is, you know, God wants to bring a fitting in to history and he will. And it's the only way God can rectify, you know, everything that's wrong. Um, And we, you know, we pray, you know, you know, Maranatha, you know, Lord, come. Um, but, you know, it's also, we did that as people who weren't expecting him to show up at Bread and Wine every yeah. Sunday. Yeah. We did that as people who weren't expecting him to show up in the prisoner that you visited. We weren't, we we're people that didn't expect God. So God is always showing up, you know. Um, he's always coming. There is and will be, there, there will be a moment where he comes with all the hosts of heaven and, you know, the end, you know, God, New Jerusalem descends, you know, out of heaven from God and God's dwelling places with men and so forth. So that's going to happen. 
Um, and, you know, it's not a metaphor right now. Um, but, uh, you know, all of that focus can keep us from not only from thinking about what it means to have a sustainable world, you know, the next 500 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years, but all the moments that Christ is coming at us all the time, you know, in the world around us right now. That's right. You know. That's right. And so, well, Kenneth, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for taking the time today. And yeah, I, I hope we get to do it again um, in the Anytime. near future, in the near future that'd be, sometime. That'd be beautiful. Well, thanks again. Um, I'm going to put in the description of this podcast while you guys are listening ways that you can connect. And, um, you know, if you like what, what, um, what Father Kenneth has to share today, there's, there's other places he's frequently sharing his reflections on the good news and this, this, the true story of the world. I love that. I'm going to steal that phrase. Thanks, Kenneth. Thank you, Paul. Wonderful to be with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Feel free to reach out and connect with Kenneth Tanner in all of the available links that I provide in the description below. Again, this podcast can't happen without the generous support of listeners just like you. I'm trying to give away to people the sort of theological and philosophical education that I wish I would have had 15, 20 years ago. It would have saved me a lot of headaches um, along the way. We have thousands of regular listeners all across the world, and I'm just looking for 300 supporters. Right now, we're about one third of the way. I think we have 105 supporters on Patreon. And this summer, if we got to 300, that would be remarkable. That would be great. That would help me get to the point where I can sustain doing weekly episodes to add, also be able to add some more of our discussion groups as well. Right now we're just doing one monthly discussion group, but as that group expands, I'd love to do more of those. There's also so much on the video side that I have dreams of doing and uh, just could use the support in order to be able to pull that off and to set aside more time, attention, energy, and financial resources into doing it. So thanks for considering supporting. There's a bunch of things that I think make it worth your while. Again, we have our discussion forums that we do for each episode and the quality of conversation that happens on those discussion forums is, is really good. It's excellent. I learn from listeners, from people just like you all the time in those forums. We also have the monthly Zoom group hangout calls. There's also opportunities for, you know, one-on-one -on -one Zoom calls together, conversations, um, plus bonus Q&A episodes, a bunch of things that I would hope you would be worth your time and be something that would help you continue to grow. Finally, I want to give a special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Anders, BJ, Carolyn Simpson, Carolyn Ruth, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke H, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Taylor S, Tim K, Thank you all for your generous support. I hope that many of you will be able to join us for this month's Patreon group Zoom discussion. I think that will be happening. I just posted it on Patreon today. It'll be happening on May 30th. 
at 8 p.m. Central. So hopefully you guys can set aside some time for that. And I hope I can chat with you all then. Until then, feel free to reach out to me in the discussion forums. You can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram as well. You can find a link to uh, my Twitter account in the notes of this podcast as well. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.